This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Gillum, mayor of Tallahassee, who's running for governor of Florida. I think the mistake we've made in Florida is we have drawn the conclusion that the way we win is by tiptoeing around what we believe, try to be least offensive to anybody. And unfortunately, it has suppressed the vote. He just may be the best hope of turning that state blue. He's been in the political game since the tender age of 23, and now he set his sights on bringing change to Florida on a state and a national level. Since Florida is currently the third largest state by population, it's one of the most critical states in the South and Southwest as part of the New American Majority strategy to win in the midterms and in 2020. This is one of the most important gubernatorial races in the country this year, alongside Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia, and David Garcia, who's running for governor in Arizona. Mayor Andrew Gillum, welcome to the show. Amy, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity and invitation. So pleased and inspired by the work that y'all are doing to, I think, transform what is the muscle memory uh, for many uh, in states like mine and in Georgia and I know in Arizona. I think David and Stacy and myself would all admit that we probably don't fit that type of graph, but it's the type of graph that can win. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that muscle memory. Florida's got a little reputation, Jeb Bush, uh, 99 has really represented a type of, you know, conservative right-wing Florida. What do we need to know about the new and improved Florida? What's different? Well, a lot is different. Uh, since 1998, when Jeb Bush uh, took office as governor, um, you'll recall that he single-handedly through executive action ended affirmative action in the state. It's kind of where I started, got my start in sort of marching and getting down to the Capitol and letting our voices be heard. But you know, Florida is a uh, increasingly diversifying state. Um, and the Democratic Party, obviously where I am competing for the first time in 2016, black and brown voters became the majority registration of Democrats in the state of Florida. A lot of people don't, you know, recognize that. We're a crazily diverse state, and I think richly so. And this election really does present the opportunity in this Democratic primary I believe, to offer the range of options. And when we're offering that, by the way, I'm one of four Democrats in the primary. But, you know, black voters are going to be about 32 percent of the vote. Latino voters will be 16 percent and white voters will be 48 percent of the primary uh, electorate. We are a state that the Democrat has lost the general election now these last two cycles by less than one point. Fewer than 70,000 votes in a state of 20 million people. In a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans by over 300,000, where there are more independents who lean Democratic than there are independents who lean Republican. Uh, and in spite of all of that advantage on our side, we have had a very, very difficult time capturing the governor's mansion. And my theory on that is, is that where Republicans see a Democrat who is running Republican light and they have a choice between that and the real Republican, they vote for the real Republican mm. and the Democrats stay home. Uh, and we can't win races like that in a state like this where our voters are staying home. You're running in one of the most closely watched gubernatorial elections, and it is a crowded field, as you pointed out. What sealed your decision uh, to run for governor? I got to be real honest with you. I, I did not think that in November of 2016 that we were going to be facing uh, a Trump administration. I think like many, I had foreclosed who the next president would be. And coming on the heels of Barack Obama, I thought we'd have a president that would uh, renew, you know, the commitment to our values and, and fight for what it is that we believe in. Instead, we have all been set back on our heels. And in my state, where Democrats have lost these races for 20 years and where Republicans have basically captured all of the seats of power in this state, 
I've watched them destroy public education. I've watched them hand over the keys of safety to the NRA and the gun lobby in my state. I've watched them do everything that they can to move public resources and public dollars away from public education. We've got the lowest starting salary for teachers in the bottom 10% of states. 40% of our kids are starting kindergarten not ready to learn. That same percentage by the time they get to third grade are not on grade level reading. We have a governor who says he's not a scientist and therefore can't say whether or not global warming and climate change is real. Never mind. We live on a peninsula surrounded on three sides by water. Um, well, just we're to at jump in there, zero. didn't you have? Yeah, yeah I was going to say ground zero for these hurricanes this last season. Yes. Yes. I mean, intense storms, right? And what that does, I mean, the threat that that presents to this state, we can ill afford. Um, any longer to have Republicans in this strong, hard right ideology running our state. I know who loses when we lose these elections, right? It's the kids that are being told they attend failure factories. It's the teachers that are not being paid what it is that they're worth. Uh, it's the affordable housing crisis, our inability to rise to the challenge of sea level rise and climate change. I mean, there are real people in real communities uh, that are impacted by these decisions. And and we've been losing, and we've been losing pretty predictably based off of the kind of candidates that we've been nominating. And I think that we've got an opportunity to do a different uh, this year, um, which is why I'm, again, competing in this race. Well, have you always been this guy? I mean, you you, I, <laughs> you ran for city council at 23. That's very, very young. Were you always yeah. kind of the the defender of social justice that I'm, I'm hearing right now? Well, my mother would say I was a disruptor. I mean, I started, uh, I mean, my, my first real political action was uh, trying to get nacho cheese Doritos in the school vending machine. <laughs> you radical. Uh, they, had tor- they had tortilla chips, and tortilla chips didn't have enough cheese on it. Uh, so, you know, I started a petition. Uh, we didn't get the Doritos, but it was certainly a nice little um, experiment with politics. I'm really struck by passion and the clarity that you lay out your political vision, what keeps you going? Hmm. First of all, thank you for that, my kids. That is a real motivation, I have to admit. But what's also a motivation is, is I understand all the things that had to come together to make it possible uh, for me to be 23 years old as the youngest person in Tallahassee's history to serve on the city commission. I know what made it possible for me to get to college, right? Uh, my daddy's advice when I was growing up was if I followed the rules, that one day I could go to the military. No disrespect to anybody who has served, but I always thought, no, daddy, I'm going to... In fact, my, my refrain was, I'm going to Hillman. Amy, you may recall a long time ago the show A Different World. Mm-hmm. And for me, yeah. because we didn't have a tradition of, of folks going to college in my household, that was the first time that I saw black excellence like that on display, like people who looked like me and sounded like me. And maybe they came from similar backgrounds and they were in the academy. And I decided very early on, I was like, I'm going to Hillman. I'm going to meet Jaleesa and Whitley and Dwayne Wayne and... And honestly, that became a North Star for me for a long time, frankly, up until high school when I realized there was no Hillman, that it was fictional. That I jest in that, but it's also serious, that I was able to see myself reflected there. And so there's so many people all across our state, 47% of which are not earning enough to make ends meet, right? I remember what it was like with my mother standing in the grocery store line when she paid with food stamps. And the embarrassment that I felt that somehow somebody was going to judge me. Well, let them judge me. My parents worked as hard as they could. 
I'm one of seven kids, born to my mother, Frances, who was a school bus driver, and my daddy, Charles, who was a construction worker, born in Miami. My mother worked in a dry cleaners when there was no summer school. My daddy sold fruits and vegetables on the street corner, and on Saturday mornings was across the street from the cemetery selling flowers to bereaved families. They did everything that they needed to do to make a way for us. Unfortunately, the conditions were such that in spite of their best efforts, that we weren't able to live the way in which they always wanted to. We always had what we needed, right? But they didn't always have the opportunity to provide us what they wanted to. And what we've got to do is have a government and a governor who understands what it means not to just survive in the state of Florida, but what it means to thrive in this state. And I know what that means, not because I've read it or because some pollster or some message board told me, but because I've lived it. And I don't believe that you should have to come from a famous family or be able to stroke your own check to be governor of the state of Florida, that you should be able to come from my background and experiences and run and compete. You're listening to Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. We'll be right back with more Mayor Andrew Gillum. Welcome back to Democracy in Color. And before we get back into our conversation with Mayor Andrew Gillum, we got to take a step back and see how this race fits into the bigger election picture this year. So here to help break down the progressive political strategies and numbers is our political insider, Tim Molina, who's political director of the Courage Campaign. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. And let's take a look at Andrew Gillum's home state of Florida. Now, Gillum has had the best chance of flipping high-stakes Florida, but he'll have to overcome voter suppression, NRA, and racism, and a whole bunch of stuff. And if a progressive Democrat can win the state in a gubernatorial race, they effectively turn it blue for the presidential in 2020. So what are you watching in Florida? Right now, the numbers look like a lot of undecided voters. I think that's the really primary voters are undecided on who to vote for. And there's like four other Democratic candidates running. And so really, it's going to be a name game, recognition, folks who really know who he is, what he's running for, and if they feel he's the right candidate for them in the primary. The good news for him is that the primary is in the end of August, right? The numbers are showing that if he can get through the primary, he has a really good chance of winning. Why do you say that, though? A couple of polls have come out and shows him up 31 percent, 30 percent against some of the other Republican candidates in the general. you got a state of Florida that's been run by right-wingers for a long time. And you have this chance for a progressive. I mean, we're hearing in his conversation, he is full on committed to a social justice agenda. It's refreshing. Yes. The key here is turnout, turnout, turnout. And again, it's really important for turnout in the primary. Right now, we have 49 percent of Dems are undecided. And in a lot of these places, there's like huge majority of people of color that could turn out for vote for Democrats. You just turn them out in the primary. For Gillum, he's in a really good place. What's really amazing is there are enough Mm African-American voters in Florida, I read, that if no one else voted, they have enough political strength to actually put Andrew Gillum Mm -hmm. into the general, if the turnout was high. If the turnout's high, and you also have another close to 20% of Latinos in this district that are registered to vote, and if they turned out for Gillum as well, it'll be a landslide. The dynamic with the midterms is that typically when there's a president of one party, the other party has a shot at gaining seats. That's the normal. But we're not in normal. No, this isn't normal. We're not normal. No, this is not normal, right? This is the first midterm election since Trump has been in office. So who knows how this shakes out? But again, traditionally, Democrats turn out less than Republicans in midterm elections. It's hard to get more people out. But we're seeing all these marches, all these energies. And 
We're also seeing Democrats win in pretty safe Republican seats, even though they may be more moderate Democrats. That's still really telling. But numbers-wise in Florida, vote-eligible people of color would likely vote Democrat in order to win statewide. 100%. So this is the first time that we can actually see a path for victory for for an exciting candidate like Andrew Gellum. Yes, absolutely. And he's great. I want to go right back to listening to him. But thanks, Tim. It's always good to hear your thoughts. Tim's going to join me again on the next episode of Democracy in Color. And in a moment, we'll get to the second part of our interview with Andrew Gillum. Let me just ask you about immigration, because Florida, as you mentioned earlier, it's one of the first big states to shift to a majority people of color population, beginning with the young people. Yes. So any conversation about flipping Florida onto our side has to consider and address specific nationalities, the black voters and Latino voters, and particularly this group of Puerto Ricans coming uh, to Florida. Yes. Help help me understand uh, the dynamic between these communities and Mm -hmm. how you engage and uh, bring them into uh, this whole process and this whole campaign. Well, I'll tell you, the Puerto Rican vote, just by one example, I think we are we're now north of 280,000, many of them who have settled in central Florida. The Hispanic population in the state is rapidly evolving, um, certainly with the entrance of more Puerto Ricans. We're on the island, high levels of voter participation there. In the I-4 corridor, we believe that they are in part responsible for the election of Aramis Ayala, the first African-American state attorney in the entire state of Florida. Uh, We believe that in Tampa, they were in part responsible for the ousting of a conservative state attorney who did not have communities of color's interest at the center of their work and replaced them with a young 36-year-old state attorney. And most people thought that was not possible. And when you consider the impact that that community can have on the election of the governor of the state of Florida, it is an outsized impact. You've already heard the governor of Puerto Rico say that he plans to have an impact on these midterm elections and that he wants Puerto Ricans to encourage Puerto Ricans from the Island, who are here on the mainland in California and in Florida and elsewhere uh, to get out and to vote. Um, And they can be consequential uh, in the outcome here. And what we've got to be willing to do is to talk with that community, to engage that community. Quite frankly, the African-American community and and, and the Hispanic community in the state have a lot in common. There's a lot about our shared experience. Now, Republicans have been able to, you know, get in there and wedge between some of the social issues to compel those communities uh, uh, closer to them. And what we've got to do is get in there and talk about what it is that we believe and discuss where we have common interest and shared uh, shared interest uh, here in our state. And if we do that, uh, again, uh, we don't have to win everybody. Um, I'd love to win everybody. But the truth is we need about a point more. Uh, and that point uh, may come from anywhere throughout the length and the breadth of this state, from any different community. On the issue of immigration— Well, wait. You you recently debated Republican House Speaker Richard Corcoran over sanctuary cities. I did. You spoke up against turning Florida into a, quote-unquote, show-me-your-papers state. That's right. And have proposed an alternative. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, first of all, we are agreed that we ought to have comprehensive immigration reform in this country. I think the leaders in Washington, D.C. have failed us perpetually on this issue. We've got to take steps to reconcile the status of 20 million 
folks in this country, in my state, the funny part about it is that these Republicans know as well as I do what the immigrant community means to the economy of the state of Florida. Their backers are never going to get fully on board with a plan that turns us into a show-me-your-paper state. Uh, They're only doing it for political expedience, to appeal to a part of the electorate that they have been able to whip up in fear that the reason why they don't have is because brown people have. Um, And it's a red herring and it appeals to a part of their base, but it's not who we are. And so what I've said is, first of all, illegals is not a noun. Uh, People cannot be illegal. And the reason why conservatives use that language is to strip away their humanity, because if you can take away someone's humanity, you can do anything to them. And we've seen that over the dark history of our country. Uh, And then the next thing we've said is that we're not going to become a place where we say, show me your papers based off of the language that you speak or the color of your skin. That's not who we are either. Uh, What we will do is we're going to stand up uh, for DACA recipients. I called the speaker himself an immigrant to the United States. Although he is an American citizen, his mother is Canadian, his father is American. But he spent 11 years of his life uh, in Canada and, and now wants to come back and lecture DACA students on their obligations. They shouldn't be allowed here in this country when, like him, they were brought to this country through no say of their own, through no influence of their own. And in fact, many of those same DACA recipients have spent more time in the United States than he did as a child. He thought I was using it as a pejorative. And I said, well, you're the only one who believes that being an immigrant is a pejorative. Did, did you go to the March for Our Lives? I did. I, well, I didn't go to Washington. I, I actually keynoted one in Florida's capital city, and we had thousands show up. It was a real powerful moment. Did you spend time with the student leaders of the movement in your home yes. state? Yes, we have. In fact, um, they obviously, as you you, you know, advocated uh, in Tallahassee strongly. And, and even though the legislation that was passed was anemic, it was historic in the sense that uh, we had not seen uh, any uh, steps in my state, not at the Pulse nightclub, not after the Fort Lauderdale shooting, uh, and obviously not on the heels of any of the regular gun violence that we've seen. And so the fact that these young people, and God, can we agree how inspiring they are in their person, in in the way in which they are addressing this moment. I have to tell you, Amy, what was most inspiring to me was the fact that these folks are very clear about the privilege that they get to walk in in this conversation around gun violence and are not hiding and are not shying from that. They're calling it to our attention and, and to their attention. And then they are opening up the stage to make sure that the voices, the full and complete voices of the victims of gun violence are also heard. And that was on full display in Washington, D.C. It was on display in the marches that I saw here in my state. And I tell you, if we can bring that kind of cross-sectional movement of people with different backgrounds and experiences all together under the weight of putting pressure on the gun lobby and lawmakers who sympathize with them, man, could we build a powerful movement. Really, I was very, very moved. Um, I'd spent a week in Cuba, so I missed the moment of the march and in the reflection and seeing the young people on stage. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, uh, this is the this is a rebirth or a continuation or a new version of the Obama coalition, but powerful yeah. and younger. And yes, um, I'm ready to follow the kids. I have to say, you and me both. <laughs> we got to get out of the right. way, right? right. We've, we've we've failed out loud uh, uh, too often, and these folks are trying to do this thing different. I think we may be creating a generation of single-issue voters on the issue of guns. Are you for keeping us safe or against it? Well, about it? that, and yeah. And it'll be a litmus. Yeah, are you for it or against it? And it makes it very clear. Oh, well. See, Florida's facing so many big-ticket issues. I mean, gun control yeah. is one. And by the way, NRA thinks you're 
you know, an F student or whatever. Oh, NRA of course. is giving and you I, an and F. I wear it proudly. The only F I'm yeah. proud of. Uh, immigration, you've mentioned other issues such as education. What are your top priorities? How do you tackle as governor yeah. the issues that face Florida? Well, I have to tell you, it begins for me with education, largely because of the outgrowth of what education gets to penetrate, what it gets to impact, what it means for ending uh, poverty, what it means for getting people connected to a good job where they can earn a good wage and take care of themselves and their families. And my approach on public education is quite simple. It is to take a more comprehensive look, to begin at the earliest possible points between zero and five. Over 90 percent of brain development that happens over the course of human life takes place between the ages of zero and five. And my state, 40 percent of our kids are showing up not ready to learn. And unfortunately, it penetrates communities of color and households of color and obviously poor communities to a much greater disadvantaging degree than it does upper income children. And so we've got to make sure that we bridge the divide between providing our kids high quality early childhood education that makes them ready to enter kindergarten. That same 40 percent, by the way, in my state are not on grade level reading by the time they get to fourth grade. And unfortunately, when our kids start behind, they almost always stayed behind. Mm. I don't mean to be doing doomsday about it. But those are the facts of it, right? So we've got to make sure that we do that. We need to pay teachers what they're worth, which is why I proposed a $50,000 starting salary for teachers. What is Teaching it now? used to be an honorable... It, oh, I just met a teacher at the March for Our Lives in Tallahassee the other day who told me that after taxes, her take home is $24,000 a year in her third year as an elementary school teacher, right? Florida is among the bottom 10% when it comes to starting salary for teaching professionals. And so what we've said is that this is an honorable middle-class profession. If we want to address the fact that we have a shortage of teachers entering into the field, that we have a shortage in our state, uh, that we've got to do something to induce more teachers and more qualified individuals going into the classroom. These are the people who do the most difficult work that exists on earth, the shaping, the molding, the, the inspiring of the minds of our most precious gifts, our children. And we treat them like they're at the bottom. How do you characterize the role of the governor of Florida in terms of turning the education system around? What would you do? The role of the governor is simply that they hold the keys here. I mean, the governor's vision here can set a new direction for the future of education, not just through the K through 12, but also at the university level. Well, you've also tweeted about legalizing marijuana and using that money to fund the schools. How, how would that work? I mean, this is something in California where the federal government has underscored the fact they are not supporting that. But in, in my home state of California, as well as Colorado and other states, they've already legalized marijuana. Yeah. How would it work in Florida? Well, I'll tell you, our voters have already voted over 70 percent to legalize medical marijuana. Uh, I'm in favor of going the extra step and taxing it and ending this cycle of criminalizing people over selling of a plant. Now, again, it's against the law and we've got to follow the law as it exists. I just think we've got to get beyond these ciphers. I mean, we know that alcohol abuse, alcohol addiction, and the role that it plays in the snuffing out of lives uh, prematurely is a much greater threat, not to mention gun violence, a much greater threat. Um, yet we have figured out a way to lock more people up to continue this prison industrial complex because of low-level offenses like the sale of, yeah. of weed. Right. And so 70% of our voters in the state have approved medical marijuana. We know that in Colorado and in California, it is reaping major rewards, um, tax benefits that are helping to plug some really important priorities. And so what we've said is let's tax it, let's decriminalize it, and let's use those resources to go into strengthening the infrastructure of the state, beginning with education and then moving on to transportation and housing and expanding Medicaid and expanding the options for access to accessible medicine for maintenance and care and not just emergency room access. 
You're listening to Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. We'll be right back with more Mayor Andrew Gillum. Hi, I'm Amy Allison, host of the podcast Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. Join our conversations with today's best and brightest political leaders, strategists, and thinkers. Our mission, to take our country back with the power of progressives of every race. And we invite you to join us. To learn more, visit democracyandcolor.com or follow us on Twitter at Democracy Color. You do a lot of your work or your advocacy, I've been reading, about decriminalizing um, you know, marijuana and other crimes with harsh penalties. You've got some personal view into the a situation of criminal justice and the way that it uh, handles particular types of it. Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, you know, while college worked for me, um, you know, my second oldest brother got caught up in the system. He was selling drugs. It was against the law, is against the law. He did his time. He paid his debt to society. And when he got out and tried to get a job and he'd apply for job after job after job after job and get no after no after no after no, all the way into the point where he just decided he was going to start his own business. And it began by power washing sidewalks uh, and then power washing houses and then buildings. And now in Jacksonville, he's got a thriving business where he hires other former felons. Um, um, uh, on the job site to to to, to help him again. Uh, I think make a good living for himself and for his family. And unfortunately, we see and we've seen too many times where we've had Republicans and conservatives say pull people out to pull themselves up by the bootstrap, and then they do everything to erect all kinds of barriers to keep people from being able to do just that. As mayor of Tallahassee, Florida, we banned the box. We don't ask about criminal background history when you apply for a job with us unless answering yes to that question is a disqualifier for the job. If it is not a disqualifier, we're going to measure you on your merit. Are you qualified? Will you do a good job? Will you bring honor to this organization and give back to the community? And if so, then you're the kind of person we want to hire. And what we found is that those are some of the best employees that we have in our government because they know what it means to be without. I also started a restorative justice program in our city for first-time nonviolent juvenile offenders. Uh, these are individuals who would normally be adjudicated before the criminal justice system be told that they've committed some crime against the inanimate state of Florida, who they don't know. They've never touched her. They don't know where she comes from, what her parents do. And so instead, we put them before community justice panels, Ms. Jackson, Ms. Jefferson, the victim, the victim's family, and they get to hear how their actions impacted the community. And you know what we've learned? By comparison to the normal system of adjudication that goes before a court and a judge, the recidivism rate of those individuals uh, six months after they've been adjudicated, about 40 percent of them go on to recidivate. And our program, uh, six months after their exit from our program, 94 percent of them have not committed another crime. And it's not because we're so brilliant. It's because it works. It's called smart justice. And we've got to do the same thing all over this state. This cycle of criminality that takes people out for a lifetime, right? We say we cannot be charged twice for the same crime, but in this country and in my state, you can be punished perpetually for making a mistake. 1.7 million folks who have had their rights taken away from them because we're part of the Jim Crow South where you've got to go before the governor and his cabinet and beg to have your rights restored. But thankfully, on this November ballot, we'll have a chance to change Florida Constitution. And if we win with 60 percent of the vote, it will automatically reenfranchise about a million Floridians. That's powerful. It's very powerful. And it's powerful in the South. It's powerful in any state 
but a lot of us aren't familiar with this initiative. Just give us the two-sentence two description of what's before the voters in uh, Florida. So thanks to the hard work of a lot of good people, we collected enough ballot signatures to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot that would automatically restore rights for a class of former felons. There are 1.7 felons in the state of Florida who don't have their rights. And in Florida, you got to go before the Board of Clemency to individually petition to have your rights restored. In this case, if this, if this initiative passes, we will automatically restore rights to about a million uh, Floridians. In a state where elections for governor are won and lost by fewer than 70,000 votes, you're talking about a whole new uh, set of voters who have the opportunity to vote their conscience, vote their lived experience, and put people in office who reflect their values. Whenever I talk to people about the path to winning, the kind of politics you're describing, the kind of leader that you are, it's a clear path. You see the path. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely, we see it. It's not by being wishy-washy about social justice or racial justice agenda. It's about being strong and including more people in the democratic process. That's exactly right. I mean, I think the mistake we've made in Florida is we have drawn the conclusion that the way we win is by tiptoeing around what we believe. Try to be least offensive to anybody. Don't speak too passionately about any one thing or another for fear of offending someone. And unfortunately, uh, one, it has not recruited the voters over that we think we were supposed to recruit by taking that tack. But number two, it has suppressed the vote, kept home the very voters that we need if we're going to win. What Republicans understand in our state and have understood for a long time is that the way you win in Florida is by turning out your voters. They don't capitulate. Uh, they don't make apology. They don't apologize for being wholly owned by the NRA uh, and, the, and the private education lobby. They, they don't make apology for that. They lean into that. And we run around dilly-dallying, shrinking from who we are and running from our shadow, uh, believing that that's going to be what will inspire our voters to come outward. It's a fool's errand. Uh, we've lost for 20 years trying that. We're going to continue to lose unless we wake up and recognize that the way we're going to win this state is by turning out our voters. You're the only non-millionaire in the race. And I have to admit, Amy, it's not because I don't want to be one. I'm just not. <laughs> you're, you're the only non-millionaire in the race. And we absorb yeah. that about yeah. your life experience and what it is to run in one of the most important states, one of the biggest states, and one of the key states, the opportunity to defeat Trump and his whole ilk. So I um, I just I want to really sincerely appreciate you and thank you for taking the time to join us today, Mayor Gillum. Are you kidding, Amy? Thank you so much. And again, keep fighting. Y'all are having real impact out here. Well, I want to wish you the best of luck with your campaign and just let everyone know if you want more information and to support Andrew Gillum for governor of Florida, go to andrewgillum.com. Thanks again. You got it. That's it for this episode of Democracy in Color. Big thanks to Tim Molina and Courage Campaign. Our editor is Chiquita Pasco. Our producer is Paula Mardo with additional field production by Molly Nugent and administrative support by LaVon Briggs. Our theme song is Truckee CA by Otis McDonald. Democracy in Color is produced by Lentigua Williams & Co. If you appreciate this show as much as we appreciate you, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can learn more about us at democracyandcolor.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell your friends, your colleagues, and your neighbors to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for listening.